Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn, on air live quarantined with my co-founder, Jeff Gannett. Jeff, how's it going today? Uh, it's going very well, Andrew. How's it going with you? It's going well. We hope it's going great for everybody else as well. Hey, if this is the first time you're tuning with us on YouTube, hit that subscribe button, thumbs this video up, bringing you three podcasts a week and then two other pod or two other videos a week on YouTube. So if you want to follow along, be sure to hit that subscribe button. Uh, if you listen to us on uh, the podcast side of things, of course, a rating and review goes a very long way. So today, uh, markets are closed, Jeff. It is Good Friday. I woke up today and I was like, are the markets halted today? I felt like it was just, obviously, I knew they weren't, but it was just... Uh, I don't even know what day it is today. Friday, I guess. I don't even know. There's no there's no more weekends anymore. What I do on the weekend is exactly what I do during the week. So I just feel like I lose track of the days, Jeff. Um, in today's podcast, what we're going to be doing is we're actually going to be going over... Um, there hasn't been too much news that came out today because obviously um, the markets are closed. So nothing really to report there. Markets ripped higher uh, yesterday, Jeff. Fed announced a new $2.7 trillion uh, liquidity situation. They're going to flood the market. Uh, so they're uh, entering into some more stimulus. Um, some interesting stuff happened yesterday. So Jeff, you watched my video mm -hmm. and I, I thought it was funny, uh, you know, listening to or that Saudis and Russia, they're coming to uh, terms with a deal on cutting production, which will hopefully stabilize the price of oil. And of course, this is just a conspiracy theory. I'm not even a conspiracy theory type of guy, but I just thought it was funny thinking, you know, through the timeline of everything that has happened over the past month, call it, with the price of oil. So they announced that they were going to, um, you know, start this price war. It killed the price of oil. They acquire this massive stake in Carnival, which was interesting, right? Um, and then they take massive stakes the Saudi public investment fund in a few different large oil companies around the world, one in Norway, one in, a couple in Europe, uh, Shell. And then they announced that they are going to cut production and try to form a deal, which I don't think a deal is final yet, but mm. it sounds like that's where they're headed. Isn't that just interesting, the timeline of everything? And in my video, it reminded me so much of... TD Ameritrade and Schwab back in mm -hmm. October of 2019, Schwab came out and they were the first, you know, call it big brokerage house or whatever, a major brokerage house to say that they were going to do away with online trading commissions that destroyed TD Ameritrade's stock and market capitalization. And then literally in November, they end up, Schwab ends up acquiring TD Ameritrade. I mean, it's just fascinating. And like I said, I'm not a conspiracy type of guy, but I just thought like thinking through the whole timeline of, you know, what has happened over the past month was interesting. I mean, why would they take such a large position in Carnival? Do you think it's because and an equity position as well? Mm -hmm. uh, what do you think they, they see in the company? Is it just because it's so dang cheap? I'm not sure. Um, uh, obviously an oil producing country could use ownership of something like carnival as a hedge. It would be natural to buy things that, uh, are not related to oil and are instead consumers of oil. So it makes sense to buy things like airlines and, and cruise lines. Um, it's a very big stock. Uh, and other than that, I don't know, but see, combining that with obviously stakes that are related to energy things is, is odd. Um, I would think that if you're, 
a country that has a wealth fund, whether it's, you know, Norway or Saudi Arabia or whatever, that you would not invest it in things that are related to oil. That seems a, a strange choice. Investing in things like Carnival seems like a logical choice. Would you ever invest in an oil company? I mean, we get a lot of questions about, and naturally so, right? Because the price of oil has, you know, gotten destroyed. And, and of course, a lot of oil companies, because of the market in general, are cheap. I mean, what would you look for in an oil company? Uh, I have looked at some recently, and they seem extraordinarily expensive to me. On so, what basis? On any basis that I would calculate it. So like a 10-year average earnings or something like that, not last year's earnings. Um, so it just seems, they, they seem very, very expensive. I don't see anything attractive in energy right now. But, you know, if people know of energy things to tell me about, they're welcome to do that. Uh, but I look on a longer-term basis, and um, I just don't see it. Generally, in fact, most companies that I looked at in energy, uh, it's the problem is the enterprise value in total, not the market cap. So the problem is the amount of debt that they're carrying that if you put, you know, after you consider how much that should really be worth, um, there's not a lot left over for me to have a lot of faith in the, in the common stock. So, um, yeah, I, I looked at a bunch of them recently that came up on screeners and uh, as an industry. No, they, they look really expensive compared to their cyclically adjusted earnings, I would say, yeah. So for you, it truly is about um, you know, the balance sheet and then I guess the after-tax cash flow to the business and I guess the predictability and how safe that cash flow is. Because some could say, you know, from the outside looking in about NACO, the company is tied to, you know, in theory, coal, right? Even though they have their service contracts and everything. Um, but the way the business is capitalized is totally different than, you know, 90% of oil companies that you'll come across. This true. Also, NACA is a lot cheaper than oil companies, to be honest. Um, I mean, I might be looking at the wrong oil companies, but I, I was looking at uh, uh, 10-year history, which is normally what I look at for a cyclical company. And I don't know if 10 years is long enough, but, um, and I would just add up their operating income over those 10 years. Uh, divide it by 10, and then you have an average number there. And I certainly am not going to pay a high price versus the average amount of operating income that they've produced in the last 10 years or so. Um, so because of that, stocks like NACO would show up as cheap, but stocks like um, oil companies went in. If, if you go to QuickFS, I can give you an example of this with two companies that aren't related to oil directly or, or aren't really oil yeah. companies. So one has nothing to do with oil, obviously, Movado, M-O-V. The watch so, company. Yeah, watch company. So if you look here, you can see. So uh, do you have, let's see. So if we look, we can see there, um, you see the PE ratio, the price to book ratio, all that sort of thing. So you got their EV to EBIT there. What does that say? EV to EBIT is 3.1. Okay, what does it say that the operating profit was last year? Uh, the, you want the margin or the actual? The actual profit? operating profit. 43 million. Okay, so 43 million. So it looks cheap on the basis of that. But then we have to look back over the last 10 years and see were there years where they had even more EBIT than they do now? It looks like in 2014, they had 68 million. 2015, 71 million. 2016, 70 million. Then it starts to decline 53 million, 43 million, jumped to 62 million, and now we're back to 43 million. In other words, this year's uh, profits, we could go through an average and stuff, but this year's profits don't look that different than profits over the last 10 years. 
So you said their EBIT to EBIT is what, 3.1? Correct. And then their actual average over the last 10 years, not adjusted for inflation, is um, something like uh, 4.3 or something like that. So if we do that, we can see that they're still very cheap. Um, and to give you some idea of why that's very cheap, uh, it's an old Ben Graham type trick. If you think about it, a stock that has uh, 4.3 times uh, 10 year average EBIT. So the enterprise value is only four to five times the 10 year average EBIT. What that means is you could basically re, um, replace the capitalization of stock with debt is the theory. So if we just do some math here quickly, um, let's take uh, 100 and divide it by 4.3, which I said is the 10 year average EBIT. So if you do that for me now, what do you get? Let me pull up this calculator. 100 divided by 4.3, so everyone could see. Whoops, 100 divided by uh, 23.25. All right, now I want you, so that's the earnings yield that you have. That's a 10-year average earnings yield you have on a pre-tax basis. Now you just divide that by, let's say, 3, and I'll explain why in a second. Okay, 7.75%. So it, it basically, you could replace the current capital structure of all stock with um, bonds yielding 7.75%. And covered three times uh, with their average interest coverage over the last 10 years. In other words, they've earned their interest three times on average over the last 10 years. And the way you can do that, if you now divide by 100, okay, you can see that that's the number that you get, which you can then multiply by the amount of um, uh, the enterprise value they're trying to buy now. So let's just use the market cap. This company actually has stock as a cash, but the market cap here is what, 307? Yep. So you multiply that by 307. Okay, so you get a number that says something like you would need $24 million a year in interest if your bonds yielded 7.7%. Now, you don't really need that because they have cash, but what that's telling you is that you could basically replace the entire capital structure with um, debt and, and what the debt is, which I just did for you. So you would have debt that could yield about 7.75% and be covered about three times. Um, based on the 10-year average. Now, there's obviously a year in there, 2011 or something, where they didn't, wouldn't have earned their interest at all, no matter how much debt they have. But on average, over a decade, you would have covered your interest reasonably well. So when you see something like that, and there are other companies that I could give you examples of, um, let's just do another one. We'll do uh, Cooper Tire. I looked at this company before. Was it C? There we go, CTB. Okay. <laughs> Okay. So again, we can look. What was their EBIT this past year? One hundred eighty-three million. Does it say their EV to EBIT is? EV to EBIT is five point eight. Okay. So then we just look at the last ten years and ask: In general, has their EBIT been higher or lower than this last year? Uh, higher. Okay. So if their EBIT has been higher, and we could get the exact number, but I, I uh, believe the exact number is that they're trading at 3.4 times their 10-year average EV to EBIT. So again, if we do 100 divided by 3.4. How are you getting this 3.4 number? Just so for people uh, that's EV to EBIT. That's the 10-year average EV to EBIT ratio. Okay. Okay. So it's actually higher than that because you did 3.8. But um, oh, my bad. I'll redo it. And then there you go. So you now divide that by three. And again, I'm just using three as a number that you'd like bonds to be covered, their interest to be covered that many times over a 10 year average. So you get 9.8%.
So again, in this case, if you just use the exact enterprise value of today, you could issue bonds that yield 9.8% to replace the stock portion of the capital structure. And those would be covered about three times on average over a 10 year period. Now you could argue about whether three times coverage over 10 year average is sufficient or not. Um, it, it depends on the company, but that's usually more of what you would have for uh, something yielding less than that much in today's amount, uh, in today's uh, uh, bond market. So some of these companies would be small like Movado and stuff. I, I think potentially too small to actually uh, interest people in bonds like that. But you're getting numbers where you could have bonds yielding eight, nine, 10% to replace all the stock. So when that happens, um, according to these kinds of rules of thumb, right? That suggests to you the kinds of things that we saw in certain decades where you had leverage buyouts and stuff. What it says basically is that if you have a stock that's cheap enough versus the long-term pass, that actually people would buy bonds to replace the stock, you should buy the stock. And the reason why you should buy the stock if, if um, the capital structure could instead be replaced with bonds is that stock with no bonds ahead of it is always more attractive than bonds um, because you have the upside. So your protection is at these companies is at the level that you have that bondholders would normally get because they're so cheap. But your upside is that if things get better, you'd make a lot more money. These, if these theoretical bonds that you'd be issuing at eight, nine, 10% yields can only ever return eight, nine or 10% plus their principal back. Whereas uh, stock can get infinitely more valuable. So, and there's lots of companies like this. Uh, it, we'll do another one that uh, just um, looked at recently. Uh, we talked about this company, but I didn't like it at a higher price, which is um, Crown Crafts. So this is a very small company, so you couldn't really issue bonds because there wouldn't be a market for something in a stock this small. But you look again at the 10-year uh, EBIT and things like that. So what was last year's EBIT? Last year's EBIT was $7 million. Okay, and they say the EV to EBIT now is what? Under Five. six? EF 5.7. Right. But then we look at the 10 year average of the past and has it often been close to the number that it is now? Yeah, the average just from I, it probably is like seven or eight million. Right. And so I think that uh, the 10 year average EV to EBIT would be so that's enterprise value divided by the 10 year average EBIT would be in the six point something range. We don't have to do the exact calculation on this. This is just another example. This company is a pretty simple one. Honestly, Cooper Tire is a pretty simple one. Movado is a pretty simple one. Um, it, this company does a lot of uh, selling of baby stuff through Walmart. Walmart's their big customer and they source it all from Asia and stuff like that. They're a really big market share, although I don't think they have a lot of bargaining power. But now if we go and we put in the names of some oil companies, for instance, let's put in ExxonMobil, right? That's the one everyone knows. Mm -hmm. So let's look at what their EV to EBIT is, right? What yes. Is so their EV to EBIT currently is 16 times. Last year's operating profit was $11.6 billion. Okay. And it looks like that's been declining. Uh, in 2010, it was 40.1, then 54.1, and then it's kind of been declining from there. Okay. So what you could do is the same sort of calculation. You could add up the average of all of those sorts of things. And I haven't done that here for you. But um, if you look, so the EBIT. That was my coffee. We're good. Oh, all right. So the, <laughs> the, the EBIT on a um, long-term basis could be, uh, that it could be higher. So you take, Let's just take what's their best year of EBIT. Best year of EBIT looks like it was fifty-four billion. Fifty-four point okay. one billion. Okay, so take fifty-four point one billion. Okay. And what's this year's EBIT? Uh, this year's oops, can't type. 
Uh, this year's EBIT is eleven point six billion. Okay, and divided by eleven point six. Okay, so that's four point six five times. So their EBIT is about sixteen, right? And you divide by four point six five, you'll realize that you'll get a low number. So you'll get a number that's down in the. Uh, you can do that. So sixteen point two divided by four point six five. All right, so you get a number of three point, right. So you get a number there, and to put that in perspective, right, that number for the record number, so if you, take, if you assume that, uh, that ExxonMobil's best year of EBIT, which was what year did you say? 54.1 billion. What year was it in like uh, 2011. In okay, so 2011, if you take that year and assume that every year from now on will be like that year, all right, you get a price on it, which is the same as Cooper Tire, if we assume that the average of the last 10 years will be what they earn in the future. So in other words, they're just expensive. They're assuming that the best every year that you had, we could look up what oil prices were then. They weren't low. Um, the best every year they had, it, you're pricing, these, these companies are being priced as if that is normal uh, when compared to something like Cooper Tire or something, which is saying that a 10-year cycle the average of that is normal. They're just very, the, the price that's baked into them is very expensive when compared to stocks like the ones that we just pointed out. And there could be problems with stocks that we point out. Movado could have bad years for a while. Um, a tire company could have bad years for a while. Um, I don't know that they'll have as bad years as the oil companies are about to have. But, and that's just, if you go to lots of different oil companies, the same thing. And some of them, it, it was stunning to me because Really, they don't look cheap on any year except for very, very recently. So on any sort of long-term average, they look expensive. Um, so I just think that in general, I'm not seeing a lot of value stocks among oil companies. Uh, when I screen and look for things and stuff like that, they're not showing up the same way that you're seeing value stocks in um, watch companies, in all sorts of basic different kinds of industries, like, like we just did tires and things like that. So they just don't look like very good Ben Graham type values. They might be okay businesses, um, but that's sort of based on the idea of what you think about the long-term economics of oil, the position of these companies and things like that. On a quantitative basis, I'm just not seeing their attractive uh, value stocks yet. They seem very expensive still. So we've gotten a few emails from people asking if we're moving up the capital structure, maybe like looking at like preferred stock or, or even bonds. How would you think about analyzing like a preferred stock situation? And then we could go on to bonds after that. Yeah. So I don't think that we are. Um, sometimes there are things that are attracted that way. I mentioned a preferred stock. I didn't say what company it was, but there was a preferred stock that I should have bought and didn't. And it's gotten more expensive since then. It was unusual in that it had better um, it was much better protected and everything except contractually than bonds normally are. And yet it was trading at a much, much higher um, yield to the worst case scenario that could happen in terms of when it would be called and stuff like that. Um, so generally it would take longer for it to be called. It was better covered than bonds normally would be and things like that. And so it was attractive. Most preferred stock is not very attractive. Um, uh, I just read the reread the Intelligent Investor recently. And Graham goes on for a while talking about how almost all preferred stock is um, worse. It's just that the price can sometimes be better. But as a as a security um, form, it's bad. And I would agree with that. Like the worst kind, which people like to buy a lot, are the bank preferred stocks. And there's reasons why they buy them. They think that they're safe because of too big to fail type stuff. But um, they generally have 
not very good yields and your only protection really is um, that the company might want to pay dividends on the common. So generally the only protection that preferreds have is that they're, um, that you can't pay dividends on the common stock until you pay dividends on the preferred stock. So if you find a company where you think they're always going to want to pay dividends on the common stock, most likely that'd be a REIT or something like that. Um, then you're protected in the sense that they'll pay dividends on the preferred stock first. The problems with most preferred stocks that I would look at that might be attractive are um, one, they can be called too soon. So that's a major problem. So that stock, that preferred I was looking at was more attractive because it was more than five or six years or so before it could possibly be called. And two, um, they, many of them are not cumulative preferred stocks. And that means that if they pass paying dividends on the common stock for a while, they can stop paying dividends on their preferred stock and banks may do this. And then you will never get those dividends back. They don't add up the arrears that they have to cover. So you generally would want cumulative preferred stock that can't be called for a while. And that otherwise looks as safe as a bond. So the same things you would look for in a bond. Um, this sort of thing that we just talked about here with these companies is one of the things I would look for, which is um, on average earning large amounts relative to likely interest payments over that time. Um, so just a history, minimum coverage of it is good too, but a history of earning plenty um, versus any interest that they would have to pay on that. And then there are other things too um, that you could look for. I think in general, uh, there was a moment, I don't know if it's over, where a few weeks ago, there was some preferred stock that was attractive. And certainly I think there were some junk bonds that were attractive. Um, but in general, I think that no, that's not the most attractive part of the market right now. I think the most attractive part is very small value stocks. So the kinds of, these were not as small versions, but the things we mentioned like Crown Crafts, Movado, Cooper Tire, those things are much more attractive I think than buying bonds or preferred stock. Um, I think that micro cap value or small cap value or whatever you want to call it is the most attractive right now. I was looking at net net recently. We might buy net net soon. Um, net nets would be a very attractive thing to buy about now. And some, they're starting to appear for the first time. So things like that, things like what we talked about here, things that meet the usual standards of Ben Graham type uh, purchasing things. I mean, if we go back, let's just go to Movado or something so I can give you an idea of what I mean. Yeah, love it. Okay. So let's just look at some of the ratios here, right? So you have enterprise value and you have PE both. Um, if you look, most of them are low. They're on the left-hand side. Um, they're generally just across the board pretty attractive. Like you're paying less than book value for something in many cases. Um, you're paying fairly low multiples of sales. So like what's their long-term pre-tax uh, pre income average, which is EBIT percentage, you can see that in the 10-year median margins. You can also see the free cash flow number. So yeah, those are 8.5. Okay. So those are in the high single digits, right? So that would suggest that we'd want to, uh, that the stock would be attractive at levels of an EV to sales or price to sales ratio of less than eight or nine or something. And what, what is the actual price to sales that we're seeing? 0 0.4. Right. And the EV to sales is even lower. So we're looking like we're getting things on like a 50% discount. Same with the PE, right? The PE is uh, seven. And what's a normal PE? Maybe 15, right? Um, we could look at EV to EBITDA. What's the EV to EBITDA? Three. Three. And what would a normal EV to EBITDA be? Probably three times that. 
So we're getting constantly all these signs on Movado, which will be very out of favor for a while. People aren't going to want to buy watches and stuff that this is selling at two thirds to a third of what it should normally be worth. We could look at who, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, you know, but does a company like this deserve a market multiple? Because I have followed yeah. this company for a very long time and I think it's always traded in this area. It's always been quote unquote statistically cheap, you know, and it hasn't really, I don't think it's done anything. Yeah, I mean, you even look at a five year chart, it's terrible. And even a 10 year chart, let's see, 10 year chart, it looked like it was up in the 40s. And, oh, well, never mind. That was in 2018, so that wasn't that long ago. Yeah, and if we look at the bottom of 2009, it was a net net. So I don't know if you get the exact price on that, but I remember it being net net. So yeah, what was the price? $6.37. Right, and then, and then go forward about seven years or so to 2012 or five years, let's say, go to 2014, whichever works for you. Um, yeah, so, up to the 40s. Yeah, so that's the kind of recovery that you can get in a stock coming out of something like this. You see what happened to it this time. Same thing could happen as what happened back in uh, in 2000, whatever. So you can make it where it, it um, increases by that sort of amount. These are other stocks that I mentioned too. Why don't you type in Haynes brand so we can start on that? Yeah, but I want to ask you a question on this. So, you know, but when investing in net nets, do you think about it differently than you would in a business that, like, I don't know how to phrase it, but like, for example, is, is when you invest in a net net, is that like a close your eyes and hold it forget forever type of investment? Or is it more of like a flip in a way? It's more of like a flip. Um, it doesn't have to be. It depends. I've done back testing of things and generally net nets over long periods of time don't perform worse than the median stock in a stock exchange. But that's because the median stock performs very badly. Um, so it tends to perform worse than an index over long periods of time. But that's a uh, statistical thing that always happens if you blindly pick a stock versus the index over long periods of time, the index tends to outperform that stock because most stocks can't keep pace with an index. Um, the indexes tend to get the returns from a small number of successful companies, not from the large number of unsuccessful companies. But um, the way you do a net net, and we don't have, I don't, I mean, we have an example, but I don't want to give it because I don't want to talk about stocks that we might buy, um, is pretty simple, which is you look at the, um, well, let me, I could probably pick stocks that are close to being net nets, although not exactly. So let's see, we could pick one of those. So um, are you logged into QuickFS? I am. Okay, so we should probably plug QuickFS. QuickFS is a wonderful... Um, QuickFS.net. Is a wonderful product that everybody should use. So let's look at some that might be close. I think these are much worse businesses generally for various reasons than I would normally pick as my net net. But let's start with um, Keytronic. Let's see how close that is to being a net net. So that's two separate... It's two separate words. I think the ticker might be KTCC, but the but the word is key and then space tronic. Let's see. All right. KTCC. Okay. So when you're talking about like a bad business or something, this is the kind of business that is much worse than something like Movado. You could also see that, like I was, um, the net net I was looking at, someone was talking about, and they said, this might be one of the worst businesses I could imagine, one of the worst industries I could imagine. That's the perception that can happen. That net net that I was looking at actually has returns on tangible capital that's actually invested in the business of over 12% for the last 25 years or so. So that's, that's not bad. Um, but because it's heavily cyclical and in certain industries and stuff, it has the perception of being not a good business. A very cyclical stocks tend to do this. Even cyclical stocks, like we talked about Movado or something, people have this perception, this memory of them that is incorrect when compared to actually what happened. So like they don't remember that Movado went up four or five or six times as a stock from being a net net before, or that that same thing could happen each cycle. 
that's not really how they remember it. You know what I mean? Yeah. So there's a, a perception thing that happens. So this is a much worse uh, business than any of the ones we've talked about before. As you can see, it has very poor um, returns. It doesn't really generate free cash flow. It has very low um, EBIT margins and stuff. And also worryingly for a company like this, it has a lot of growth. A lot of growth in a net net is not necessarily good if the returns are very poor. And this is the kind of business that I'd be more concerned about. But if we look at the business description, uh, you can see what it actually does. And I'll give you some idea. Provides electronic manufacturing services and solutions to original equipment manufacturers in the United States and internationally. So that means that it's a contract manufacturer, um, probably. So what that means is it will hold large amounts of um, working capital and stuff like that, probably. So let's just look at the balance sheet and see if this is close to being a net net or something like that right now. And I can walk you through it. So what does it say the total current assets are? Total current assets are 198 million. You're going to need a calculator for this. Total liabilities? I got a calculator. You. Okay. <laughs> uh, total liabilities, 124 million. Okay. So we subtract out 124 million. We're left with 74 million. What do we have as the, uh, well, we could do this. Actually, instead of the, doing the market cap, let's just look at the income statement for a second. So you go to the income statement. I can give you this in per share number. What does it say the last number of shares were? Uh, 11 million, is it telling me? Yes. So we just divide by 11. So 74 divided by 11. And that tells us net current asset value is $6.72. So how close is that to being a net net? Let's look at the stock quote, the price today. $4.25. So that's a net net. So $4.25 divided by 6.72. Correct. Uh, divided by... Or 63 63. So there you go. It's two thirds of net current asset value. So this is a Ben Graham net net right now. Now we can look at the balance sheet and stuff like that, but already we know this is the kind of thing he's talking about. And these kinds of things bought at this price tend to have very high returns. Um, all studies show they have 20% or better returns. Graham said that's what he thought they had. Buffett said that's what he thought they had by looking at their own files on how their partnerships did. Every study I'm aware of that's looked at things from the 1970s to today, that's done in the U.S., that's done in the U.K., anywhere, plenty of peer review papers. All buying find. a basket of them? It is buying a basket, but to be honest, statistically, that can't matter that much. So um, the honest answer is that if it's business risk, which is your issue here, then buying five of them or buying 50 cannot possibly matter that much. Buying 50 would increase the amount of stocks you have to buy by like 10 times but maybe would only diversify you in terms of business risk would protect you more by maybe like 0.1 times or something. So maybe like you need to have a 1000% increase of the number of stocks you have to get a 10% increase in diversification purposes. Um, the, the reason that you'll be uncomfortable holding net nets and stuff, honestly, is market type stuff, not specific stock stuff. So everyone asks, do I have to diversify widely? I mean, statistically, not really. Um, I know that it feels like you should, but the benefits of diversifying widely beyond about five stocks or so don't make a great deal of sense. And they add to your costs in a big way. Um, they add to your costs in a big way for some of these companies because the companies are quite small. Uh, the big things to do is buy them and hold them for at least a year. So that will cut down on your costs. And then the uh, other thing that you can do by doing that is you uh, make sure that you get more of the upside because the mistake that many people will make is they'll buy them and then sell them too quickly. If you only revisit the stock once every year, then that's pretty simple. So let's say you buy Keytronic. So Keytronic right now is, um, we're said trading at 63. 
uh, at, at cents on the dollar, so to speak, right? So right. you buy it today on April uh, and in April of 2020, you hold it till May of 2021, and then you look at it. And if the stock is trading at net current asset value or above, which could either happen because net current assets have shrunk or the stock price has risen or both. If it's now above net current asset value, you sell it. If it's not, you hold it for a whole nother year. And the reason of using a whole year is so that you get a large benefit instead of selling too quickly, which many people do. Graham had an approach where he sold after a 50% move in the stock, which is another way of doing it. Um, the biggest problem is people sell them too quickly. This is a much worse business and doesn't deserve to trade at much above net current asset value. But there are other ones that would fall into the same sort of category and could be potentially net nets. Um, this is not necessarily a bad one, though, if we look at things like, um, can you look at like key ratios or something like that? Sure. Yeah. So if we look, we have data going back however far there. Yeah. Now let's look. So can you give me the 10 year numbers on like uh, let's say, do they have return on invested capital? Yeah, that last bottom one. So yeah. how often has return on tangible capital employed or whatever been negative? No, uh, one year. Uh, 2018, it was negative 0.8. And then, I'm sorry, 2019, 5.3, negative 5.3. Okay. So this is much worse than some of the companies we looked at. It's not as attractive as those sorts of things. But the main problems for it is that they don't earn money in the form of cash. That's my main concern. And that when they grow, it's not very good because uh, they pile up inventory and things like that probably. So it's a business I really don't like a lot, um, but it is a net net. But if we go to the balance sheet, so if you go there, we can just take a look at what their situation is. The big other thing I don't like about this business as compared to one I was looking at as a net net is coverage ratios and stuff in terms of the balance sheet. So the one I was looking at, for instance, which I'm not naming here, uh, it had about 1.6 times more cash on hand than it had total liabilities. That's very attractive. Let's compare the situation here. How much cash does it have on hand? Total cash looks like a million. And how much are total liabilities? Total liabilities, 124 million. See, I don't like that. So, uh, and they have now, 30 million in debt. Right, yeah. Um, but then what do we have in terms of uh, accounts receivable? 81 million. Okay, so that's a little bit better. Then what do we have in terms of inventory? 100 million. Right, so it's mostly weighted towards inventory and stuff. The easiest way to think about a net net, the way that I would think about it, is I just did the thing earlier where I showed you what would this be if it was replaced entirely with bonds, which is always a very, very good way to look at is a stock super cheap. One of the first rules of is a stock super cheap is to say, can I replace the common stock with debt? If the answer to that is ever yes, that the bond, these bonds would look fine if I replace them that way, then the common stock is very attractive. The same rule applies to net nets, and that's what makes net nets attractive. Forget that you're a stock uh, a shareholder, a buyer of stock. Forget that. Don't think about the upside at all. Just think that you're a lender. Would you lend to this company? And the question whether you would lend to this company depends on things like what their past earnings have been and stuff like that, sure. But it depends also on what kind of collateral they have and what form it is, and how liquid it is, and how much there is of it versus total liabilities. The number one thing with any net net, any situation for, um, I mean, just any sort of situation for a, a bank or something, probably. So like a bank thing comes down to like three, a few different things, but let's talk about three obvious ones. So the number one thing if I'm lending to someone is who am I lending to? What is their character, right? 
So if, uh, so like we talked about trans time and stuff, I, I didn't, wouldn't lend to trans time, but they did issue bonds at 8%, um, just around the same time we were recording our, our podcast talking about trans time. And they raised about a billion dollars that way. Right. So, but from what you heard me say about it, I wouldn't like the character situation at trans time. I wouldn't like their behavior, their risk taking. So if I don't like that, then don't lend to them. So same thing with the net net. If you look and you say, this could be a fraud. I really don't like what they're doing with their auditing situation. I think they're taking crazy risks. Then you don't lend to them. And you think about it that way. So that's number one. Number two is what are the cash flow situation? So the best way for debt to be protected, as long as you trust the people and stuff that you're lending to, is their cash flow. Are they generating cash flow over time? A business like this is one that worries me because if you'll notice, cash flows are very poor. And the reason why cash flows are generally very poor is because they have to put a lot of it into working capital, right? So if you look at changes in working capital, right, when this business grows, the changes in working capital tend to be negative in a big way. So it's not very cash generative. It turns into a lot of inventory and stuff like that. So cash flows are not great here. And then the third thing that we look for is if you have the right people that you'd want to lend to and you have the right cash flows that you'd want, you then, and I'd say only then, look at collateral. So um, like people who were lending to uh, Carnival at 12% yield or whatever, were probably doing this. They were looking at the collateral because Carnival has close to 30 billion dollars in like ships and stuff at book value and they probably only had about 10 billion or so in net liabilities total so people were saying oh i'll give you six billion dollars because i have so much collateral right so let's look at the balance sheet and we can talk about collateral here and what form it comes in so the best collateral is cash and we want it to be really high versus total liabilities well it's not it's very low so then the second best form of collateral is receivables right and their receivables could be very good if they're contract manufacturing for big clients and stuff. Um, it's good, but it's not great. We're not going to want to be lending just because of that. So we come down to the third one, which is inventory. And that's really what we need here. We have to be seeing enough, um, have enough faith in inventory and stuff to be excited about the business uh, that way. So this is a net net, but this is the kind of net net that I'm least um, interested in, in buying. Uh, but it is trading two thirds and it could work as part of a basket. A lot of people would buy this one. I think they wouldn't have any trouble with it. Um, I, I have some net nets that I, uh, some companies that I know are net nets. Uh, and I'm trying to look at one that I would be okay with that way. Um, we can do one. Okay. We can do one company here that I would not buy because of the first of my rules. Uh, but we'll type in MSN. And what's so, that first of your rule? Uh, my first rule was character. And we, uh, so I, I, we needed to MSN, we need to be Emerson Radio. Okay. Oops. So but this will just give you an example of a net net. And statistically, people might not like this one. I would steer clear of this one completely because of people involved with it I don't like. So, um, but let's put that aside. Let's just look at the balance sheet, right? Well, what, what don't you like about them? I'm not going to get into that, but I would never lend to them and I would never buy their stock. Was it like past business decisions they've made or is it literally their character? I mean, it's just so people wonder and be like, hmm, I wonder what, you know, he sees where he doesn't want, it automatically disqualifies the company. Got to yeah, get something more than that. I don't want to get into it. It's obvious if you look through their filings and stuff, there's, there's some people connected to the company that would make it so that no one should ever lend to them or anything like that. That's okay. all you need to know. 
Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. So um, I'm not saying everyone at the company has that issue, but there are people connected in some way to the company that make them an unacceptable risk to giving money to ever. But we'll just use them as a balance sheet because I happen to pick them out and I don't want to give you a net and I would ever buy. Here's a net and I would not buy, but not because of quantitative things necessarily. So let's look at the balance sheet. All right. So what are total liabilities? Total liabilities, three million. And what is the current assets? Current assets, forty-one million. Of that, thirty-six is in cash. There you go. So that's very good. So if these were, if this was a business in which I definitely trusted all the people involved and stuff, then here we go. We have a situation where net current asset value is. Let's take the current assets of what is that? Forty-one million. Yep. And what were the total liabilities? Uh, what did I say? Three million. It says thirty-eight. And then we can go to the income statement. Is this company just a shell? What is this? Uh, so if we look, what's the what was the shares outstanding? Shares outstanding twenty two million. Twenty two million. Okay, so thirty eight divided by twenty two. Thirty eight divided by twenty two. One point seven two. Okay, and then we go back to the main page for the stock to get an idea of how cheap or expensive it is. What's the stock say it is at? Sixty eight cents. So there you go, 68 cents. We can divide 68 into 172, and we know that the number we're going to get is closer to two, one-third than two-thirds, but let's do it now. There you go, 40%. So trading at 40% of net current asset value. That's the kind of thing that would look attractive. Now, it's lost money some in recent years and stuff like that, which is a concern. But honestly, if you have a beautiful balance sheet, and I trust you, people are likely to lend to you, even if you have some negative income and stuff. And I might be willing to buy your stock. So um, what is it? Are you banking that you know somebody lends to you and they just you know turn things around? I mean, what are you banking on? Well, you're banking that you're lending them less money than they have in cash. <laughs> I mean, you're banking on the fact that I'm giving you one dollar and you will have two dollars and fifty cents in collateral backing that or whatever it is. It, that's exactly what it is in this case. So generally, banks, if they don't think that there's something seriously wrong with your character, are comfortable lending you ten million dollars if at all times you have 25 million in the bank, that's usually pretty safe. No, I get um, that, but I'm saying from like an investor standpoint, right? You just said that they are losing money. Right. What are you, what are you banking on like to make a return on your own investment? Is it really just the price uh, discrepancy between net current asset value and the share price? Are you banking that management, if you like the character, they're able to you know, squeeze a profit out of it? I mean, what are you, how are you thinking about it? Like if the business okay, is so terrible, if the business is so terrible that it's losing money, right? Are you banking on a turnaround? Sometimes. Or is every so situation different? Sometimes. So that's the, a big way in which the Bangram approach works. Um, a reason why net nets work in some sense, as weird as this sounds, is let's think about it. Uh, let's take the most recent years. How much did they lose recently? They lost uh, $4 million. Okay. So yeah. this company obviously has like its revenues gone down to nothing and stuff. So some things unusual have happened with this company. But let's look at the balance sheet again, right? So that might be a way of that we, we can do this. And again, remember, I would never touch this company. So don't buy this particular company. We're just using this as an example. Um, their cash, right, that they have is um, how much do we see there? Their cash is 36 million. Uh, 36 million. They have some liabilities. Let's say they liquidated, right? So let's say that they liquidated. They generally probably inventories and accounts receivable and stuff could offset their liabilities. So all that cash is excess cash, right? So what do you want to say that they 
uh, it would cost to buy a private business right now? What do you think? Do you think you'd pay 10 times pre-tax earnings, 15 times, five times? What do you think? Um, a private company? I don't know. Yeah. Uh, less than less than 10, right? Okay, let's try 10. So they say, all right, we liquidate our business, we sell off. So the receivables and inventory is turned to cash, they pay off the liabilities. We now have 36 million that we have to pay buy something. So we buy something for $36 million, we don't borrow or anything. And we buy a business that produces 3.6 million in EBIT. Okay. Um, so 3.6 million in EBIT. And then let's take out a calculator, 3.6 million in EBIT, we then um, tax that at 0.7, we tax at 21%, so 0.79, so 3.6 times 0.79. All right, so that's what we have there. And then how many shares did we say that they have out? Was it 15, or was it 22? 22. So we take that number, we divide by 22. All right, so we can go out and buy something that will produce after-tax earnings about 13 cents a share. What's the stock price? Let's go back to the overview, 68 cents. Right, 68 cents. So we're gonna be paying you know, a, a little more than five times, what is that, six times, um, the profits here. So we can immediately, just by taking the cash, buy a private business that will put this thing at a PE of five or six, right? And you could probably buy a private business that isn't shrinking, one that's growing a bit, mm -hmm. one that's been consistently profitable, right? Don't you think someone would sell me a business producing three million in EBIT for 30 some million in a situation like this? Probably. So if this company really trusted them and they really had that cash, you can just invest in something else. And that's constantly the case with net net type things is that if they're earning bad returns, it's because they have uh, capital tied up in something that isn't very attractive, you know? Um, now, many of these companies, I would say, are, uh, some of them have problems, and so that I wouldn't buy them because they're not legitimate businesses right now. But we just gave examples of companies. I mean, uh, Keytronic is a pretty legitimate company. Um, it's not a great business and stuff. But if you look more, let, let's use Movado, because Movado turned into a net-net last cycle. So we don't know that it will this cycle. All right, it's way above net current asset value. Um, so if we go to the balance sheet though, we can see what net current asset value is. So current assets are what? 465 million, total liabilities 317 million. So that's the problem, the total liabilities are kind of high versus current assets, but if we subtract one out from the other. And could you make, and I'm just gonna play devil's advocate, right? Are you betting on the company's ability to you know, be good capital allocators? You no. know, because you're talking about them, you know, rebuying or buying another business and stuff like that. No, so this is pretty simple. So what's the excess? 148 million, you said? Yeah. So the excess in Movado is all inventory. Inventory is carried at the lower of um, cost or realizable market value, right? So the stock is much more expensive than that now. It would have to fall quite a lot to get down to that price. But let's pretend for a second it was a net net, which it is not. If it got down to that price, it's pretty simple because we've looked at watch companies that have done this before, their inventory will turn into cash, right? And the other thing that happens is that you have mean reversion because if you turn some of your capital into cash, you sell off your inventory and don't replace it, then one, you produce cash on that, but two, you reduce the amount of assets that you have and so your returns on capital generally go up. A lot of these businesses are cyclical. Some of them don't have very good returns on capital, but their returns are likely to improve. You compare that to the reverse case, let's put an X on mobile and see why 
something like NetNets will outperform something like ExxonMobil. So what's their return on an invested capital, right? So their return on invested capital used to be high, right? If we look down at the bottom there, and uh -huh. people used to think it was good, right? And so in 2014 or something, people could have paid high multiples for this stock, right? But then what happened? Yeah, it, it contracted. And not only did it contract, it contracted to levels. This is supposed to be a blue chip oil company, right? It's one of the biggest, safest companies around. It's only earning returns on capital that are like those earned by net nets, right? Mm -hmm. And not only that, but that's before you have a huge decline in oil prices now. So here's a blue chip type company and its returns on capital aren't going to look any better than a net net. But you're paying an absurdly high price versus what you would pay for a net net, right? Mm -hmm. So that's the concern that you have. Um, I would prefer when buying net nets and things to have things that have been earning consistently in the past and all of that kind of stuff. Um, there's only very few net nets right now that are that attractive. We look at things that are just two thirds of net current asset value or less, which is the Ben Graham approach. Um, it, it's a, most people argue against buying them. However, as a strategy, they'll outperform anything else that you could think of. There's no, I'm, there's no investing strategy that's as well proven as net nets. None has ever held up as well. There's nothing that's as logically um, supported by what you're doing. And uh, there's nothing that's been as proven in countless papers around the world and stuff. And more than that, there's nothing that's an actual strategy that people have used and had success with very consistently. Um, ben Graham bought net nets, Warren Buffett bought net nets, I bought net nets. For all the people I just mentioned, the net nets were some of their best returns of their careers. So mm. it, it is very easy thing to practice. Um, there are concerns that I've had when talking to people about net nets because of some of the things they focus on. So people tend to pick the frauds. Um, people tend to pick the biotech companies and things like that and some other weird stuff that I would suggest not doing. Now in a very diversified basket, if you held them long enough, the payoffs from those could be so big. Um, we'll, we'll give an example here that is a current net net, okay? So type in Tandy Leather Factory, TLF. This is a true net net, I believe, as of today. Let's see. We don't have the latest balance sheet from them still. We're waiting on that. So what's the price? $3.64. So that could be more than a net net right now. I would say, uh, um, I mean, it is a net net, but it could be more than two thirds. I think two thirds of net current asset value as of their last balance sheet was like $3.22 or something like that. But their balance sheet could have more net current assets now than we thought. So this one is very typical of the one that would be kind of very attractive. Um, what you see here is that the long-term average, right? So let's take again, EV to EBIT or something. You have an EV to EBIT of like five. But what is that EBIT? The last year's EBIT was what? Four million. And what year was lower than that in the last 10 years? None. None. So in the example of ExxonMobil, why I said not a cheap stock is that you'd be paying three, four times the best EBIT they had in the last 10 years. Here's Tandy. You can pay about the same amount of EV to EBIT for their worst year. Would you rather pay for the best year of ExxonMobil or the worst for Tandy? I mean, history tells us the worst for Tandy will weigh, is a way better bet than the best for ExxonMobil. Um, but a lot of people could say that Tandy is a dying business, like a melting ice cube, and Exxon isn't. Well, I think Exxon's going to melt a lot faster, a lot sooner than Tandy right now. I mean, look at the return on invested capital. Who's had better return on invested capital over a full cycle, ExxonMobil or Tandy? Exxon well, had some good years, but Tandy looks more predictable, more stable. Yeah. So um, I'm not saying that Tandy necessarily will be a better business than ExxonMobil. 
there are reasons why people pay a ton for ExxonMobil, not for Tandy. Yeah. I'm saying that people's perceptions are out of whack. Their perceptions are of safety and security and good returns in ExxonMobil. The company's grown less than Tandy has. Yeah. It's often had not as good returns on capital. You're paying a much higher price for it. Um, let's go to the balance sheet. This is an old, out-of-date balance sheet, so it's a real problem, and we don't uh -huh. have updated numbers on Tandy. And things will get a lot worse for Tandy before they get better. But let's say total current assets. What are they? Sixty million. And then what are total liabilities? Uh, Seventeen million. Okay, so they're so mostly that's in the 43. form of right. Tandy's mostly in the form of cash and inventory. They have a big thing about their accounting of their inventory being misaccounted um, for. So that will be a big problem for them. Uh, but in general, a lot of their inventory at cost, um, not in terms of how much profit they'll make from it, but at cost is heavily leather. So they have cash and they have leather. Um, that generally is pretty high. If we take, for instance, just cash, cash was already in excess of total liabilities, right? Uh, yeah. Okay. No, we can yeah. Yep, it is. Because cash right. is 24 million and total liability is 17 million for people listening. Right. We can also look at the cash flow statement, right? Um, and get an idea on that. So we can look at things like cash flow from operations. Were they consistently positive? Yes. Okay. And then they have some property planning equipment that they can spend on. So they can have possibly negative free cash flow in some years. It's not significantly negative most of the time. Um, so there you have a history of generally providing uh, capital, uh, 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 funding themselves. So we looked at the collateral. The collateral looks fine to me. We look at the cash flows. Cash flows look okay. Um, we haven't heard from management or anything in like a year because they've got this problem where they can't uh, tell us anything while they're having their accounting problem because they're not filing with the SEC right now. So they may get delisted um, if they don't file with the SEC soon and they just decide to get delisted. And then the stock will become even more attractive because there won't be a NASDAQ stock. There'll be some small business that you could buy instead over the counter. Um, and then they could start telling us things again. Or uh, they could get current in their in their SEC filings. But the issue here is just the huge disconnect in terms of the, the uh, odds being given on each stock, right? So if we go back to like the income statement to get an idea for Tandy, right? Just some idea of how, how cheap it is, right? Um, so uh, let's take, okay, so what was their peak years in operating profit? Looks like 11 million, 12 million. Yeah, so it's 12 million in 2014. Okay. Let's go back to their, uh, so 11 or 12 million was their best years. Okay. So let's go back to the overview. All right. So let's take something like um, 12 million. And then let's say we take out like um, taxes and stuff. Maybe we get down to, let's say generously and stuff, 8 million or something. So their market cap is 32. So that's about four times the after-tax profits they would have in their best year. Um, and that's not giving them any credit for cash, which we said the cash is how much was the cash compared to like the market cap and stuff right now? It we was had cash of pretty close to it, wasn't it? Cash was of it? 24 million. 24 million. So and you have market cash. cap is 32. Yeah. So you have cash that's what, um, you know, uh, you, you have cash there that's three quarters or something of the market cap. You have earnings, which on their best, on their, um, worst year, let's say, their worst year was this past year, you're less than 10 times pre-tax, right? You're at, what is that, eight times pre-tax or something. Um, so you're like eight times pre-tax of your worst year, you're less than three times pre-tax of your best year, plus you have cash. What if something happens to the cash? Well, you had a lot of earnings in the past. So if earnings recover, then you're well situated. What if 
earnings don't recover. Well, if earnings don't recover, a lot of the inventory will turn into cash and slowly wind down the business. A lot of things would happen where you could be well protected in terms of the market cap. As opposed to that, let's look at something like ExxonMobil, right? So if we go to ExxonMobil, to give an idea of a company that's not protected by these sorts of things, you have one form of protection in ExxonMobil, earnings. Your only hope is earnings. Because if we look at the balance sheet, we can see that, you know, what's their current asset situation? 50 billion. Okay, what's their total liabilities? 163 billion. Right, so no protection there. Uh, they have some assets and stuff, but their assets are all stuff that produces oil. So, you know, mm -hmm. um, they're using it to produce their earnings. It's not idle stuff like cash. So if we go back to the income statement then, or to the uh, cash flows, either one that you want in cash flows. Okay, we'll do cash flows. All right, we can see what the cash flow from operations were historically. So what was their worst year of cash flow from operations? looks like it was uh, 2019 at 20, I'm sorry, 2016 at 22 billion. Best year of cash flows from operations. Say that one more time. Best year of cash flow from operations. Best year was 56 billion in 2012. Okay, now compared to Tandy, what do you think? Exxon producing cash flows from operations, do they have to use a lot to buy more assets to explore, to do whatever else they have to do? No, it'd be Tandy. You think Tandy has to use more CapEx? No, I'm saying Tandy's a safer bet. It would be Exxon for sure that has to use more. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. The, so, the, so the cash flows from operations you said at Exxon were what, 50 to 60 billion in one year? Yeah. Okay. So let's give them credit for that. Let's say that somehow they don't have to pay for any CapEx. Okay. So if we do that and say they don't have to pay for any CapEx, we can go to ExxonMobil again for their homepage. All right. And then what is their market cap? Market cap is $184 billion. Okay. But then how much is their debt? So we know that their debt is slightly higher um, because we can look at some other things. So their debt increases a little bit. So if we go back now to the overview, and we'll just give them credit as if they don't have debt, they have some net debt. Um, we see that they're already, if we do that, their best year, they're, they're trading at three and a half times or so, their best cash flow from operations, right? With Tandy, we said that they're trading at less than that, a little less than three and a half times, their um, best year of operating profit that they had. Operating profit is generally a more demanding measure than cash flow from our operations. Um, so you have a problem there that you're basically betting on Exxon is very cheap, if like that best year is a likely thing. But if we just look here, you know, uh, their operating profit over time, um, they have some years that are really good. But what if it's more like the last five years than the first five years of the last decade, right? So like, what's the range of operating profit they had in the last five years? Last five years, it yeah. looks like from 12 billion down to 2.7, up highest of 22 billion. Okay, so 22 billion. So 22 billion, if they have their best year of the last five years, is their normal in the future. Um, then the stock is reasonably priced, right? We're talking about as close to 10 times or something, eight times, whatever, um, their EBIT of their best year of the last five years. On the other hand, if we look at Tandy, that's their price for their worst year. Mm -hmm. And that's not counting their cash. So ExxonMobil, you got no cash, nothing to protect you on that side. And you're saying the best year of their last five years will be their future. Tandy, you're saying, I've got tons of cash, but I don't even have to count that. Um, the worst year of their last five years is what I can bet on as being sufficient to be eight times EBIT or whatever like a normal company might trade at. So it's not that you know that ExxonMobil won't do as well as Tandy or something. 
But it's very hard to pick companies like that, like oil companies that people propose at times where you can look for other companies like this and see, well, there's a lot more protection here that unless things go very wrong for them for a long time, um, I'm going to do okay. And with something like ExxonMobil, there's no margin of safety. There's no protection because you can't buy it on any basis on which the returns are anything but their better returns of the last decade. So you're just assuming that you have to have returns that are more in line with like the better years of their last 10 years and can't be anything like the worst years that they've had recently. Whereas there are companies that are like microcaps and stuff where you can buy them much more based on their worst years. And they don't have to be net nets. So Tandy, when they updated their balance sheet, will probably be a net net. But Movado and Cooper Tire aren't net nets, um, but they're just priced way lower than what people are willing to pay for big companies and stuff. And that's why I say that the small cap value things, the micro cap value things are some of the most attractive because we can find so many instances uh, there of kinds of things that Ben Graham would buy. Whereas the big companies that people had that have been popular with investors in the past um, have come down in price, maybe in line with the value type stocks, but they're just not that cheap. Um, they're still pricing in uh, outcomes that are on the better side of what they achieved the last 10 years. And for something like ExxonMobil, some of them are a little weird that way because, I mean, realistically, we've had the biggest decline ever in demand for oil. So mm -hmm. you'd expect that for at least a while, your returns for oil companies are going to be a lot worse than anything you experienced in the last 10 years. Um, and yet we can't even price in bad years in the last 10 as being acceptable, whereas something like a net net or something, you, you do factor that in. So, of course, the reason why people don't buy things like Tandy and stuff, there's a few different reasons. But the reason why people don't buy net nets is one, like you said, they don't see a way to make money. I'd say that's the biggest reason why people um, don't do well in stocks is that they want to know how am I going to make my money and when am I going to make my money so they like a story, a catalyst of, okay, in two years, you'll make your money because this is what will happen. When in reality, it's a lot better to buy something where you have no idea how you'll make your money. And there's multiple avenues to how you might make it. So, okay, they might shut some things down. Okay, they might acquire something else. Okay, they might turn around the business successfully. I mean, if you look at Tandy and stuff, it's obviously producing way below it, what it was capable of earning in the past. So if you look at like gross profit is a good measure. What's gross profit at in 2018? 51 million. Okay. And when was it higher than that in the past? Never. Okay. Uh, so that's 52 million. Sorry about that. 52 for the million. Four okay. years before. So Five. generally, if a company's gross profits are at peak type levels and its operating profits aren't, that tells you that you have an operational issue. And that means that someone can come in and try to turn it around. It could get worse. It could get better but it generally tells you that the company is not operating as efficiently as it was a few years ago because gross profit is much more of a steady measure over time. And in fact, like statistically looking at companies gross profitability and assuming that's the normal part of it, using gross profits to predict future profits is generally more accurate than using operating profits. The reason why using operating profits aren't very accurate is because you saw the company managed to decline. What is that from 13 to four? So they managed to have a decline of um, like 75% or so, more than that, over 80% of their operating profit while having like no declining gross profit. So basically they had their expenses keep rising while sales and things didn't. So if you come in and you try to turn those things around, there's internal stuff you can do to turn it around. So basically it's a turnaround stock, right? Mm -hmm. And same thing with return on invested capital. Return on invested capital now is poor. It was a lot better a few years ago. 
So a good example just for the net net thing is let's think about it. If we're buying a two thirds of net current asset value, right? Then what we're saying is if this company can ever earn a decent return on its book value, because net current assets are usually less than book value, they can't be more. And if we're buying at two thirds, that means that we're probably buying at half or less of book a lot of times. Like if we look at Tandy, it's what half of book, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're buying something at half of book, if yeah. that thing starts returning 10% a year or better, let's uh -huh. say, um, then you have a huge type return. In fact, in theory, you're getting okay returns at first, even if it's only earning half of, um, it's half of what an acceptable return on invested capital is. So basically with something like this, you're just saying, can it get back to a 10% or better return on invested capital? If it can, then you bought something very cheap because you bought something at half of book value that's suddenly returning 10% or better, right? So that's how net notes work. And uh -huh. gen generally the problem that people see is they don't know how the business will turn around. And a lot of times they project into the future things that have happened in the recent past. So they look and they say, oh, well, Tandy's been declining for five years, so I should get out of it. But if we go to like, let's go to ExxonMobil again as a really good example of this, of why you don't want to do this. So if you say, okay, Tandy's business has been getting worse for five years, I bet it'll keep getting worse. If we looked at ExxonMobil in the middle of the decade, let's say, um, their business had been improving for a while. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, I guess it'd been improving. Um, there's not a lot of improvement over the 10 years for Exxon, but it, let's say that it was, that you're seeing returns that are pretty high and whatever. Um, then what you didn't count on is what happens in the five years following where they suddenly have this big drop into those sorts of things. And it may be better if we used Cooper Tire as an example of this, because people might understand this better. So let's assume for this purpose that Cooper Tire is a cyclical company, um, ExxonMobil is a cyclical company. They have unstable uh, returns on invested capital, things like that. And we look at Cooper Tire and we see that it's very cheap right now versus the long-term average, though not necessarily that cheap versus today's numbers, right? But uh -huh. if you take them both in, you can see that this is a lot cheaper and you just assume that there's a great deal of fluctuation in their cyclical results. Whereas what can happen with a stock like ExxonMobil is people could become convinced that it's doing something that's not purely cyclical or something. So you're not betting on that kind of thing. Whereas in reality, uh, the, the cyclicality of it. So you're not necessarily putting a low PE on a, uh, a good year for them and vice versa, putting a high PE on a bad year. Whereas if you look at a lot of the numbers, they're not dramatically different really for the two companies. Um, both these companies haven't really grown. Uh, return on invested capital over a full cycle. There's some bad years for Cooper Tire, but there's some bad years for Exxon. There's some pretty good years for them uh, both too. You know, um, We don't have all that dramatically different numbers. I mean, if you look, I don't know. I mean, we could compare this on the 10-year median margins. So you see the return on equity, return on invested capital for Cooper Tire. That's what it looks like. If you go to ExxonMobil, we could compare it and get an idea. Oh. It's a pharmaceutical company. Yeah, big difference. Right. Uh, I mean, ExxonMobil's are actually not quite as good. Yeah. Yeah. Cooper Tire so, is better. Yeah, but no one thinks that Cooper Tire is a better business than ExxonMobil. They don't think it even now. We can see the price of the two companies, but uh -huh. which might be true. Uh, I don't know. But uh, it's a perception thing because by the numbers, you're not seeing a lot of evidence that ExxonMobil is a much better business than Cooper Tire, but it's certainly perceived to be a much better business. And so I wouldn't want to buy Cooper Tire instead of ExxonMobil when they're at similar prices, but if they're at dramatically different prices, um, then that might be interesting. So if we're looking at prices at which we're saying they're both cyclical companies 
at which ExxonMobil is not trading at a very low price compared to its 10-year average earnings, and Cooper Tire is, then you would bet on something like Cooper Tire. So that's the kind of thing that Ben Graham would do, and that's the sort of value approach. And I think that a lot of times recently when we've talked about stocks on this podcast and elsewhere, that this kind of approach to value investing is not that popular and not that thought of anymore from people as how you invest. Um, well, which makes when, sense, right? Because you're saying that there's, you know, you're starting to see more and more net nets, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's starting to come back uh, or because of the market, but there just aren't a lot of net nets, especially in the United States. Yep, that's true. So there are not a lot of net nets, but there's also just things that people aren't thinking. People are thinking more in terms of compounders and things and less in terms of stocks that are just very cheap in terms of the odds on them, you know, uh, uh, like handicap. So, like handicapping them, right? So those sorts of things that you see, like we mentioned with Movado and Crown Crafts and all those are just examples of lots of companies that are getting to points that are a lot cheaper. In the first stage of like a bear market or something, everything drops together. But in later stages, it's almost always the case that value type things that are unpopular will outperform these other things. So I would expect over time that the companies that we talked about today, um, companies like Movado and Cooper Tire and Crown Crafts and lots of other ones, any net nets, things like that, will outperform stocks like ExxonMobil for the next several years. Um, that's normally what happens. And the kind of big popular stocks that were at higher prices tend to do worse. Um, and the cheaper stocks that we're talking about now, the really small, cheap stocks and stuff, tend to do better. And that's generally the pattern that you've seen, whether it was after the, um, the bear market, whatever you want to call it, back in starting in 2008 or so, or back in like 2000, back in the 1970s, back in the 1930s, generally that's what it happens. Now in the 1930s, you did have some smaller companies and stuff fail. So you do always have to want to look at how safe they are. And we gave some examples of companies I don't think are that safe. There's no doubt that ExxonMobil is very safe, very easy for them to access credit and stuff like that. So you just always want to look for stocks that are like these these uh, net nets and things, but that have a lot of cash and a good ability to survive for a long time. But yeah, these small value stocks, I think, are the attractive part of the market right now. I don't think that the big popular stocks, the compounders and stuff are attractive yet. They're not at prices that are really uh, attractive. So I would really say a focus on net nets and things like that is the stuff that will make a lot more sense now. Cool. In the focus compounding daily, Jeff, uh, somebody asked you, what are your thoughts on MRO stocks? And he sent you, uh, you know, an email about that. And you said that I like MROs as a business and Granger and MSC Industrial are starting to look cheap enough. Uh, so tell me about Granger and MSC. You've owned Granger in the past, haven't you? I have never owned Granger. I wrote it up. I liked um, some things about Granger. Often hasn't been that cheap. We could go to QuickFS to type them in and give an idea so I can just show you what these companies are like. Right. Um, them up. I, th- I think they're sort of getting cheaper, but... I think that they're generally pretty uh, expensive. Uh, in fact, let's see, Granger may have, the stock may have done. Uh, Is we this can the do, right one? Just Real GWW, GWW. Let's see. Here we go. There we yeah. go. Okay. So um, I think that they're attractive businesses in the long run. I don't think that they're exceedingly cheap right now, and they're going to have trouble in a recession or something. But a few things. First, we can just look at them and see, on the one hand, like, I, you know, this is a stock that deserves to be popular much more so than ExxonMobil, okay? This is a stock that has grown, how, you know, the last 10 years has grown consistently. Returns on invested capital are much higher. Yeah, Returns on really invested good. capital are very consistent. 
if something should be a blue chip or something, it should be like a Granger, right? It shouldn't be like an ExxonMobil. So that's the first thing. So there are legitimate reasons to like a business like this. However, um, there it's not that cheap, I would say. Now, Granger does own a company, own a little over 50% of a company called Minotoro in um, Japan, which is listed in Japan. And I'm not necessarily suggesting this, but it tends to be the case that Japanese investors get a little excited with that company beyond the point at which American investors give credit to that company and Granger. So it is true that you could figure out how much of the company's, earn, uh, company's value really comes from that. And you could short that stock over there if that's easy to do. I don't know if it is easy to do. It gets to a very high PE. So generally, like the PE and stuff of that company is a little frothy compared to Granger. And uh, you can kind of create Granger excluding that business at maybe a cheaper price, probably. So I think that this, the, this, in theory, this you could get the stock for cheaper than what you're seeing. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily do that. I think that's a nerve-wracking experience because that's a pretty good business to be short. But, you know, um, so enterprise value to sales here is what, 1.5, it says? Yep. Okay. And then pre-tax income historically has been about 13%. So I think that we're still paying a little bit over 10 times pre-tax earnings. I think that that's high. Um, I don't think that's bad in normal times, but I think there's a lot of other businesses that are more attractive than that. So while I would like Granger and would look at it, the stock price is not that low. We can also see what's the stock price say it is right now. Uh, $279.87. So if you go to Focus Compounding, you'll see that I wrote up Granger actually. Uh, I wrote it up twice. On the one hand, you have a very long report that members can read. Uh, it's like a 10,000 word report. And then also on top of that, you have um, a write-up that I did. We don't have that write-up, so we can't say, but the price was much, much lower. If you want to use a chart, we can use a chart. That might be easier for you. Um, yeah, if, I don't if you think just I have go, the bandwidth. <laughs> if you just look at a chart of the company, go back to five years, right? So if you see there was a period going back right around there, what did it get down to? $161. Yeah. And so I think I wrote up at 170 something or whatever to revisit saying it looked cheap then. Uh, and so now, yeah, it got cheaper because of things that were happening generally in the stock market. But if you look, the time to buy Granger was several years ago where it was pretty cheap. And uh, that was true for some other MROs and stuff. People were a lot more pessimistic about Granger then. Now versus the market, it's a lot higher. I don't think that it's that attractive versus the market today because it just hasn't dropped in price and stuff that much versus the market um, to be as attractive as it was a few years ago. I thought it was really more attractive then in like 2017 or something than it is today. Uh, but I like the business a lot. And I think long-term, it would be a good bet. I just would like to get it at a lower price versus this, you know, the extreme low prices we see on some stocks. Um, we also have MSC Industrial, which is ticker on that is MSM. Um, I also wrote this stock up. These are not the only MROs. These are just the two that I wrote up reports on. And this one is more exposed to metalworking and stuff like that. So it will be hurt in a recession possibly more than Granger. Granger might be hurt a lot in the shutdown because Granger serves plenty of different companies that will be affected by the shutdown. But generally, Granger is maybe a little less economically sensitive to certain manufacturing activities and exports and stuff like that that might be hurt longer term. But here we have enterprise value to sales, 1.1. Pre-tax income average is even uh, about, that, about that. So we're seeing that you got a pre-tax uh, normalized, an EB to EBIT type situation now, which is probably a little less than 10 times. And given where today's tax rates are and stuff, you can do the math on that with Granger and with MSC and see that they're maybe trading at, you know, 13 times earnings or something like that uh, when you adjust for PE and stuff. This is a business that what grew earnings per share by 10% a year 
Um, even if we take lower numbers, like how much they grew their revenue buy and stuff, that's good numbers to have growth of that for a company that PE now is like 13 times or something, a normal level of, of uh, profitability. They won't have normal profits for the next couple of years if we have a recession. But same thing we could look at with Granger. If you go to Granger's um, quick FS page, um, again, although the PE says that it's what 17 or whatever now, I would estimate that it's really closer to being about, um, eh, it could be 15 or something. So that's not that wrong. Uh, so you're paying PEs of 13 to 15 times without leverage and stuff. They do actually use a little leverage for companies that have um, 10 year previous returns on uh, growth in EPS of like 10% or something. So for growth stocks, these are really cheap and you have really consistent earnings and stuff growth for them. So, you know, if I was going to pay this much for something, if I was going to pay PEs of 13, 14, 15 times, I would certainly want to pay it for Granger and MSC Industrial and not for ExxonMobil. Mm-hmm. I, these cool. are just much better businesses, much more predictable. Yeah, I agree. Granger looks great from looking at the quick FS as well. A lot better than Exxon. I mean, when you look at the return on equity and the return on invested capital. The biggest thing is probably if you just look at the earnings per share line and look across, because they also buy back their own stock. Um, so in general, it's one of these companies that will, except for in extreme situations like we have recession now, except for that, it's going to tend to have higher earnings per share each year. So you can be pretty comfortable in that sort of thing. This is the kind of company that Buffett would buy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cool. Well, if you want to get access to the Focus Compound Daily, join the email list at focuscompounding.com. It's for free. Or you can follow my Twitter at Focus Compound. It gets tweeted out every single day when the market closes. I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with Jeff and myself. We hope everybody has a uh, good, good Friday and has a great Easter uh, this Sunday. Thank you so much. We will see you on Monday. Have a great weekend. Take care.